0: get up gotta get out
1: gotta get home before the morning comes what if i'm late got a big day gotta get home before the sun comes up up and away got a big day Sorry, can't stay i gotta run run yeah gotta get home pick i am croc footwear enthusiast joshua alvarez
0: are you wearing crocs right now I'm Liam O'Donnell. Okay, are you wearing yeah, crocs right yeah, like uh, now only that,
1: not only am i wearing that i'm wearing the light run johns like the, the athletic ones
0: Okay. Uh, you know what? When you worked at a hospital,
1: it I can, been under- appropriate.
0: I can understand, but you don't work at a hospital anymore. And now you rock Crocs yeah. post hospital.
1: Because that's the thing, man. Cause now that I'm not in the business of suffering for money, <laughs> I'm in the business of comfort, baby. These shits are comfortable. Yeah. This is crazy. To talk. Say it, I don't buy it last. It's true. I'm wearing them right now. I can't, I can't with you. My name's Josh Alvarez.
0: Yeah. No, we did it. We did it. We, and I'm Liam O'Donnell. We've done it. This is Cinepugs. This is episode 137. This is how it goes sometimes. 137
1: is Cinepugs. That's what's happening.
0: This is how it goes sometimes, is that uh, your partner, who you consider your life partner- that your creative hetero life partner. Yeah. yeah, your creative, your creative life bond drops a fucking bomb on you like I'm wearing Crocs. <laughs> ah. And you just have to roll with it. You gotta vibe with it. This yeah. is what it no, people man. people think there's no talent involved in podcasting, but there is a certain sort of talent, which is Josh is just fucking pulled to the left. And I gotta ride with it. I can't like <laughs> derail the whole show and just be like, All right, I guess this episode's about Crocs. What the fuck, man? Instead, but I gotta be like, vote. Oh, okay.
1: I was dogging the Skechers, and then you were like, "No, bro, Skechers are not bad; they're cool." And then I got them that's for literally.
0: Work. That's literally not what I said. To be fair,
1: that's what you said, bro. You were that's like, "That's literally Skechers, not what I said." No, nope, no, no. Yeah, that's what no. you said. I heard you. No. So then I bought a pair. This is, <laughs> this is, <laughs> this Skechers is work. just
0: the Drake situation all <laughs> over again. You motherfucker. <laughs> I, I, I'll send you something like, like recently, y'all, I, I, through TikTok discovered this, uh, Toby, uh, wig, gentleman. I guess people know this dude. I don't know how to say his name. He's, uh, he's, uh, I think he's Nigerian. Uh, but he, you know, he's, he's the sort of dude that people know about, uh, because he was famous before he started rapping. You know, he he was a, he was a, he was a football player. And then he got real hurt. and He couldn't play football. So then he used his football money to start a charity in Houston, where he's from, that works with, uh, I I don't think it's just African immigrants, but it works with immigrant communities in Houston. And he became known as this charitable dude who occasionally did some rapping on the side. And after like years of this charity, people were like, you should put more time into your music. And he does. And uh, the record he put out, I thought, is pretty good. It's got some great features on it, like Black Thought is on there. Uh, Royce Blood. the Five Nine is on there, and it's a pretty good record. But he released a single recently that I thought was great, and I I watched. The reason I figured out who he was is he was posting the making of the most recent video on TikTok, and I was like, Yo, this dude's kind of nice, you know. So I checked out the video, and I thought I like it a lot. You know, it's it's a little more mainstream than what I'm usually into, but he definitely uh-huh. has some. He definitely has some bars, and he definitely has some insights and his wife is on the song with him. She is also real good, which I did not expect at all that he'd be like, Oh, I'm going to put my wife on the track and then she would also be hot. That's like, what is happening? You know? So I dug that. So I sent that to Josh. Nothing. He probably didn't even fucking watch it. But one time he convinced himself, I like Drake and he like absorbed the whole (laughs) Drake catalog. That's what this is. I didn't say, all I said was, All I said to you was, you remember how Skechers were joke shoes when I was a kid? I don't think they're considered joke shoes anymore. They have, like, full stores and stuff. When I was in San Francisco, there was a nice Skechers store, like, right in the nice part of town. And I thought that was weird because uh-huh, I always thought uh-huh. of Skechers as Bobo's. But I've never worn Skechers. I don't think they look good. I don't own any Ske- – I wasn't endorsing Skechers. I was just <laughs> correcting you in your assumption that a uni- – you treated Skechers in our conversation like Kmart. Like, remember when we were kids right. and you'd be like, blah, 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 Kmart. People would be like, oh, okay, I know what Kmart means. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it was when we were a kid if you said Sketchers you knew you were busting
1: on somebody And I just yeah, don't like, think Oh snap that dude's got those Sketcher johns on Tight all tight, yeah, all tight. I, and don't... I was making fun of him and then you were like but no bro those shits are dope. No, that's
0: not what I fucking said. That's what.
1: <laughs> again, this is like when My I was takeaway like, away from whatever you said was yo. Those shits is hot. Get a pair. And I was like, you know what? I do everything Liam tells me to. Mostly, except no, for you, watching don't, you don't. You don't do it all. To- no. I do the things. I do the things that you tell me to do. That I <laughs> never, think are like never, life things, but not never, like movie things. Never. Which is funny because we have a movie sh- podcast. But whatever. That's not. I, that's not the there.
0: I hate you so much. <laughs> it's true.
1: So anyway, what are we talking about today, Liam? Uh, On this episode,
0: episode, we're talking about two neo-noir films as curated by the Criterion Channel. So for those of you who don't know, as part of uh, their uh, programming for July, uh, the Criterion Channel has curated a variety, I think 20-some neo-noir films, ranging from... Uh, stuff like The Big Sleep, to uh, Manhunter, to all kinds, e- even um, uh, Cotton Comes to Harlem, and across 110th Chinatown's Street. Chinatown's
1: on there. Yeah, yeah Chinatown. Chinatown. Whole and, variety. Um, there's of stuff. like
0: a bunch. So we yeah. picked, we picked, we each picked movies to discuss. Uh, Josh picked The Long Goodbye.
1: Uh, Ellie and Gould. Liam picked and Liam picked killing of a Chinese bookie. Yeah no john cassavetes
0: yeah no i i'll straight up say that was my choice because we recently did a cassavetes
1: episode Mm -hmm, where we talked about um what was the we we talked about um what was the movies that we watched i was trying to think of it while i was watching um ben gazzara do his thing in killing of a chinese bookie oh we watched the one with gina rollins where um and because also Seymour Cassell's in this one as well. And he was in that other one, like young Seymour Cassell moving through to mustache Seymour Cassell, which I'm also into. Um, I forget the fucking movie we talked about, though. But anyway, yeah, this is our second foray into John Cassavetes film, into the cinema verite of John Cassav- Cassavetes. So, you know, I was into it. It
0: was cool. I was trying to I was trying to find the episodes so I could remember what the what the movies were. Uh oh, faces and a woman under oh, yeah, the influence. Yeah, yeah.
1: Woman under the influence was it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Great, fucking great.
0: Yeah. So that was my inspiration. Um, and I just thought, well, this seems different than the two Cassavetes films that we've watched. I'll, I'll choose mm-hmm. that. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, spoiler. We'll get into it more. I don't know that I liked it as much as the long goodbye, which is right now for me. One of my favorite neo-noir films. In fact, uh, the only reason it's maybe not my favorite of the genre, if this is a full genre, uh, let's say of the films chosen by the Criterion Collection is because Criterion Collection also choose chose some Michael Mann films. And the only reason I didn't mm. choose any of those Michael Mann films is because we've already said we're going to do a Michael Mann episode sometime in the future in which I want to yeah. do uh, Thief and Manhunter. So I didn't want to choose those for the thing. So I was like, oh, yeah, yeah let's do Cassavetes. Yeah. It's still a really good movie. I just think... Um, It'll be interesting to talk about it in comparison to the other movie we chose, which I think has a few more connections to the original source of the noir tradition. Now, I want to say up front, even before we get into sponsors, all that stuff, um, we're not experts on noir films or on neo noir. That's the it, n- neither of these are things that we think we're experts on. We're just this is more of a uh, us responding to something new. So if you're a deep yeah. if you're a deep head and you're hoping that we're going to come with all the facts. And the mm. and the knowledge of all the 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 Maltese Falcons and whatnot that's just not mm. that's not our strongest suit. I don't think is that correct. But come Josh? holler
1: at us. Let us know. Yeah, I would yeah, say yeah, that yeah, we yeah. don't really know all that much about noir in general. I mean, we've seen the touchstones, I believe, but um, this I've is definitely a four-way for something new. Yeah. yeah. But also, when we do our Michael Mann episode, we're going to call it Man Eater. Oh God. <laughs> two ends. Two ends. Anyway. All right. So who would we like to thank for this wonderful bouquet of cinema discussion, Liam?
0: Oh, I was about to do that to you. Well, Josh, uh, I think first and foremost, we want to thank all of our uh, patrons who support us on Patreon. Uh, For those of you who didn't see the post, uh, I got my big box of coffee from Essex. And so uh, this week I'm going to start shipping that out to people. Uh, Hopefully you've included your full correct address on your Patreon account. If you have not, I'm about to send coffee to the wrong spot. So please, please, Uh please make sure your address is correct on your Patreon account. Also, if you thought to include your shirt size, I will also send you a shirt. If you did not include your shirt size, go ahead and message us your shirt size so I can be sure to send you a shirt because we got a bunch of new shirts. I feel like
1: you're talking right to Dana. Is that what this is about?
0: No, I thought I I, I created this message uh, idea prior to Dana revealing to us <laughs> that the address on her patriotic ad is wrong. Which, by the way, she still has not fixed. So I think she just assumes. <laughs> so you know, let's let's make a very Dana specific message. If you are a friend of mine, which a number of our patrons are, they're not just patrons; they're like actual friends. And you right. think you think oh, I'll just text Liam my address, or I'll email Liam my address. That is not going to work out for you. You need to fix it on the account because because I can create an actual like document from the Patreon that I can use then for shipping and I don't want to have to have a separate piece of paper where in my sloppy handwriting I've written down your actual address. Get out of my face with that shit. Okay? Just don't do that to me, please. I just I don't need that. Okay? So, I know uh, I'm as- uh-huh. I'm asking a lot here, but it's what I'm asking. <laughs>
1: Who else do we want to thank, Liam? Uh, We
0: want to thank our friends over at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. Uh, You can find them at xlvacx.com. They are the premier screen printer of the Lehigh Valley, and we think they could be the premier screen printer
1: of your life. Of your heart.
0: Look, you got a thing to think to remote. You don't even know that you do, but you do. Whatever that project is you've been working on, maybe you made a, uh, a, a demo at home that you're trying to market. Maybe you just started a podcast with your friends. Maybe you have a new business idea. Maybe you just are in a, a new D&D campaign. Whatever it is, you want a T-shirt, you want a dad hat, you want fucking embroidered socks, whatever it is. The Lehigh Valley Apparel Creation folks can help you with that. They they are professional and personable, and they can get you whatever you need.
1: There you go, beautiful people, beautiful people, big machine.
0: All right, Josh. Who else? Who's the who's this? Who's the third person?
1: Essex Coffee Roasters for all your beautiful coffee needs. Big up to Aaron Dalvik, who plays in Bwell, who my band will be playing with coming in the winter time. Uh, these guys have. Well, Aaron has an operation that is dedicated. To not only delivering the finest in coffee, but also delineating the concept that coffee is an elitist endeavor. That everybody, regardless of your station in life, everybody deserves a good cup of coffee. So if you want one of them shits, or tea, hey, maybe you don't like coffee. Maybe you need some tea. Maybe you need some hot boiling tea. Because tea is good. He also has tea.
0: And merch and cool merch.
1: And merch. If you head over cool there right merch. now,
0: if you head over right there right now and use the code Cinepunks C I N E P U N X at checkout, you'll get ten percent off. Okay, so do it. Uh-huh. Just do it. Just stop and also tell fooling them around them. and do it. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. Do it. Yeah, and in the little notes, say obviously because of the code, I was sent here by Cinepunks, but I want to say it specifically, just as a reminder of how awesome they are. Okay, just do it.
1: Yeah, because Aaron needs to know. Even though he does know. He probably knows. He basically knows. He's aware. He's aware. He's aware. So, yeah. Shout out to Essex Coffee Roasters. Their coffee is the shits. And holler at your boy and tell him Cinderpunks sent you for 10% off. All right. So, the next segment of the show, Liam, is called Whacking on Track. Whacking on Track. here's the funny thing. (laughs) Here's the funny thing about Whacking on Track. So, as the listeners of my show know, of our show, are aware. I have recently undertaken a new job. And it's funny because this is my first time having a new job in 20 years because I've worked at the same job for 20 years, and uh, I'm now held captive with a bunch of new coworkers that are like trying to figure me out. I think, which is okay. I mean, I get it, Liam. I'm an enigma. You're aware, right? Like I'm this wrapped like in old, an
0: enigma wrapped in a mystery.
1: In a metaphor, I'm an old, tattooed, bespectacled, bald man that most people think are Chinese or black for some reason. And I also kind of, <laughs> it's true. I also keep to myself a lot just because, you know, I'm not the kind of guy that makes the scene is all like, what's up, Josh Alvarez here. How y'all doing? Like, I'm not that dude. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm the guy that kind of comes into the, to the cafeteria. You know what I'm saying? Finds a seat, enjoys the seat. You go into the cafeteria? They call it TDR at the casino, <laughs> the dining room, which I think is really funny. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Anyway. Yeah, so everybody's like, so what do you do? And I'm like, you know, what do you say when you're Josh Alvarez and someone asks you, what do you do? You say, you know, I do stuff. And little by little, friends that I'm making at, at this new job are finding out that I do things here and there. And one of the things is CinePunks. And, uh, yeah, I think it's really funny because it's like, I got to explain like, where you know, you weren't the same place for a long time, Liam. They know everybody knows. Cause what are you gonna do? Not talk about yourself for 20 years. Like I get it, you know, but it's just funny having this weird, like getting to know you moment with like all these new people that I work with just being like, Oh yeah. Cause I get it, man. Like, you know, I know how I present, Liam. You know what I mean? Like I'm again, a jaded old punk guy. I get it. And, um, I don't know. Sometimes just looking through the eyes of these new people, just hearing their responses to the question, So, what do you do, Josh? Like, it's, it's, it, it, it restates to me that, like, oh, yeah, we do a bunch. Anyway, so whacking on track comes in because, uh, as you can tell, when you're working with a bunch of new people, what are you going to talk about? You're going to talk about, like, you know, People's sneakers and stuff, which is true. And I was, explaining, I was explaining because, you know, I work at a casino now, right? And it's overnight. So you see yeah. all these like, you know, people walking around in wild style. Everything from like, you know, like um, like just people with like newfangled, like Gucci clothes to the socks and all that, much like a big smalls, or like you see people like that are in there, like you know, with ponytails that don't belong in the places where they've elected to put them and like plastic bags. And it's just like a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff to take in. So I was explaining to my one coworker, like whackin' on track used to be a little game that me and my brother would play when we were at work where we'd talk about people's sneakers, we'd be like, yo, is that shit whack or on track? And that's what I've co-opted to become whacking on track for Cinepunks. And here we are, 137 episodes later, and we still do that shit. So that's where that that's the phylogeny of uh Uh, whack it on track. It's a sneakerhead game. But, um... (laughs) That was a ridiculous (laughs)
0: aside. That was ridiculous.
1: Thank you. What have you done recently that is whack? And what have you done recently that is on track?
0: Well, that's a very good question. Um, It hasn't been more than a week since we recorded. And so I gotta be really honest. I haven't done... A ton of stuff either whacking on track since we recorded. <laughs> However, uh, there are one or two things. One is I watched a you know a little indie film, little small piece of you know a a female led drama called Black Widow. I don't know if anyone's heard of it. Uh, it's just you know a small little movie with Scarlett Johansson and Florence Pugh, and you know it's it, it's sort of a girl power indie film, you know.
1: Mm. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, you know, I I watched the most recent Marvel movie. I'm a little behind. I know a lot of people have already watched it and I'm jumping on the bandwagon a little late on this one, but I just, you know, I wasn't in a rush to see it. I didn't have a lot of excitement and it didn't help that a lot of the feedback I was hearing as the movie came out was negative. Like this is one of the worst Marvel movies and blah, 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 blah. And, Really. And having watched it, I don't get the negative feedback on it. I don't get people who are super bummed on it. I don't think it's better than a lot of other Marvel movies. And, and I think if your general feeling is I'm tired of these movies – I actually kind of get that, even though I am a comic nerd, and so I have a lot more tolerance for this. I, I can mm. see someone saying, like, we've been we've been treading this ground for a long time, and, and I might be ready to move on. I get that. Mm. For me, mm. I don't feel that quite yet. I think I'm still – it's still tickling a little bit of my nerdy bone, you know what I mean?
1: <laughs>
0: mm. Mm. Um, where I'm just a nerd, and I like comic shit. So it's still getting to me in that way, especially – other properties like Loki and stuff that's a little weirder is definitely more up my alley. Oof. But but, uh, but I still thought this movie was pretty good. I mean, it helps. I don't understand the folks who aren't appreciati- appreciating Florence Pugh's performance in the film. She, like, steals the movie from me, you know. And not only is she good, but a couple of times I think she really sort of forces uh, ScarJo to act, which is, like, interesting. <laughs> um, because I think... In my mind, Scarlett Johansson has mostly been sort of breezing through this role as Black Widow. She has a couple of charming moments. And of course, let's not downgrade even the way they film it, that's like less impactful than other martial arts movies. She still has to do a lot of physical work. So I don't wanna mm-hmm. I don't wanna play down the fact that like even if they're using a, a double for some of those scenes, there's some amount of like, you know, physical prowess she's had to learn to to do this role. So I wanna take that seriously mm-hmm. as well. But I don't know that the that the character has as much charisma as it could or even what I think she's capable of. I don't I don't think this mm-hmm. is because she's bad at acting. I think she can do a pretty good job. I just don't know that all the Marvel movies she's really shown up for the way I think she could. And in this mm-hmm. movie, I feel like there's a number of scenes where we get more from her. And this could totally be the script. I also want to be clear. Uh, maybe she's just not given enough <laughs> to do in some of these other movies because they don't take the character seriously. But in this movie, mm-hmm. there's a number of scenes where I'm like, whoa, Scar jo is doing more right now than I've seen her do in most of these other movies. You know what I mean? And so <laughs> I, yeah. I I appreciate that. And then Florence Pugh, I think as this sort of angry, mumbly secret agent is perfect. She's fucking gold. Um, I like a lot of what happened. I, I, I like... The sort of uh, secret agent family getting back together plot, I kind of like that.
1: Yeah, Um, I like David Harbour a lot. I haven't seen the movie, but I I I do like him a lot, and I like to see him in a Marvel property. I think that's cool.
0: He, I I mean, he's just playing a giant doofus, but he's good at that you know what i mean like i just you know it's kind of our boy though right like we love the giant doofus
1: what's up evo if you're listening but um stop
0: stop poor evo poor evo i don't know Um, what i'm talking about anyways i think it's good there's also some backlash because the villain in the film there's a main villain and then the secondary villain is taskmaster and the version of taskmaster in the movie is not the character from the comic book but
1: Uh, Taskmaster was always a... No orange cape? Like, I always thought Taskmaster was a badass.
0: See, I always thought Taskmaster is like a B-level side villain that I didn't care about. So Really? I thought he looked cool. I mean, I guess he looks cool, but that doesn't make him cool. I mean, if we're just talking about character design, yeah, I guess so. But I I, I've (laughs) never thought like, oh, that's I mean, let's take it the other direction. I think one of the worst design characters in Marvel history is Kang. Uh, But I yeah. think Kang is badass as hell. Kang is one of the best villains Marvel's ever had, but that design is stupid. The green fluffy <laughs> shirt and the purple head. I think that sucks, but especially because yeah. it's also, you can easily confuse it with Captain Nemo. They look too similar for little kids to to discern between them, but uh, <laughs> Noted. it doesn't, it doesn't Captain matter. Captain
1: Nemo or Baron Zemo?
0: Oh, that's what I meant. Baron Zemo. My bad. Uh, right, right, right. Thank Captain you for Zemo's correcting me. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole different thing. Thank you for correcting me. Um, point is this. I There's a whole group of people who are mad about Taskmaster. And they're mad for upset boy-feeling reasons. And uh, I don't care about that. And uh, if that's you, I think you're a shitty incel. And I hope you stop listening to our podcast. How about that? You can get fucked right in the face. How about that? Um, I just I can't I can't imagine saying some of the shit that I've seen people say because of fucking ta- especially let's also be clear this is the MCU uh, in one film they took AIM one of the most important organizations in the history of Marvel comics and made it into like yeah. a shitty startup with one interesting character and that's it and now granted they can they can recon that AIM can become important later but like. That is like a huge decision and we just kind of rolled with it like, oh, that sucks. Oh, well, you know, like (laughs) that's just what it is. Oh, that's just what it is. It's fine. The idea that like these Marvel nerds are suddenly they're suddenly done now because of Taskmaster, but they were on board for everything else. Straight up eat my butt. I don't care about that. Yeah. like I can't.
1: Fuck all that. Yeah. Anyways, I thought it was pretty.
0: I thought it was pretty good. But if you're a Marvel movie hater, this isn't going to win you back. Like it's just standard fun Marvel movie. Uh, It has some, some, uh, let's say, rough edges. You know, not everything kind of works that great in it. But it's funny and charming, and I really like
1: Florence Pugh. So there we go. Yeah, I love Florence Pugh ever since Midsummer. I mean, come on, man. Like before that, that, she
0: was in that wrestling movie. Remember the wrestling oh, yeah, family? Yeah, the fighting yeah. with my family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also good. She's Her fucking and Edgar, great in that.
1: I, uh, what was the name of the dude from uh, Simon Pegg movies? Oh, Nick Frost. Nick Frost. Love Nick Frost. You were about right. to say Edgar Wright, and
0: that's the director. Yeah, no, that's
1: incorrect. <laughs> incorrect. incorrect, categorically.
0: Yeah. Uh, um, I also watched the Fear Street trilogy. Um I I went into a bit more detail on horror business about it, but I'd love to hear what you think uh, about this trilogy of twee horror movies.
1: Uh, I enjoyed it. It was fine. I mean, I don't think, I don't know if I'll think about it ever again, but it's the kind of movie that's like almost specifically designed for that like adolescent sleepover.
0: Yeah. You know what I mean? Like
1: when you see like, Return to the Living Dead when, like, you sleep over at Bad Michael's house and it's, like, a Friday night, you have school tomorrow. Like, that's, like, this movie for this generation, I think. Because it's it's just consciously woked enough, right, right? like, pertinent to a new generation of, of horror fan. But also, it delivers on the gores yeah. and the head chopping. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm into that. Like, if I was a kid and that shit popped up when I was, like, sleeping over at Bad Michael's house with my brother, you know, like, this would be that shit where I'm like, I think I have to walk home because I'm kind of scared right now. And I don't really know if I can make it until the morning to see Uncle Rudy and eat bacon and eggs and spam and shit. So, um, but that said, I thought that the third one was really, really compelling. I like that the I rest agree. out of the three. I um, agree. I I thought that the first one was probably the weakest. And then the second one would be my my second favorite. So three, two, one for me. That's that's interesting.
0: I, I, the the looking at letterboxed people mostly disagree with you, and like the first one the best, and then the other ones less. And I more agree with you. I think the first one's okay. I really like the second one, but I think the third one is really good. Not
1: only, yeah, it not only lays the foundation, but it resolves everything perfectly. You know what I mean? Like with the still caveat of like the, the book being stolen at the end. Like I loved the encapsulation of that first, the third one. I'm sorry. Well, and the
0: third one I think causes me to want to take them as a whole anyway, because I think they, yeah, it, Each individually maybe isn't as good as the whole project is. Uh, My co-host over at Harbors is Justin Lure. He found the 90s needle drops distracting, and I didn't feel that way at all. Did you find them distracting?
1: I mean, I didn't like a lot of the song choices, but that's just because I'm a discerning audiophile. (laughs) I understand. Oh, yeah. He's he's
0: not in that boat at all. I think he actually likes some of the song choices. Those are like his jams.
1: (laughs) I'm okay with it. I mean, whatever. Like, it's funny hearing Bush in 2021. You know what I mean? The band, right. I mean. But um, also, like, whatever. It's fine. Like, it didn't really distract me or anything. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't feel – I mean, yeah, it was fine. It was fine. I felt like it kind of really, worked, but – I loved the mall ending of the third one, though. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really, really fun. I, I Because, you know
0: – My one criticism, though, is I think they pushed the blood – gimmick too hard like by the end when they're all fighting each other because there's just so much blood and they were i'm just like i don't think it would work that well i don't think it would be as effective as they're making it out to be i think it it gets a little excessive but that being said i still think it was a fun watch and it really worked i i want to bring up a moment i'm gonna i'm i'm basically beating this horse to death but i'm gonna bring it up again anyway which is uh when she's in the cave this is a spoiler for people because i keep trying to talk about it without spoilers and I'm tired of doing it without spoilers. So, you know, the big reveal is that the nice family of the nice town are actually the witch people. They're 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 casting the spell and the lady who has been besmirched was just a, a nice girl who got killed and cursed cursed that family but is not herself a witch. So anyways, um there's a moment when the, the our main character is chasing after him and he says, you know my ancestor, whatever the dude's name was Solomon, whatever mm, Solomon good. Yeah. he built these caves with his words and his will and you want to take <laughs> that away. And I what I, I keep bringing it up because in the moment immediately I thought, well, that's not really true, right? like he didn't he didn't, <laughs> he didn't build,
1: build a cave.
0: Well, he did build the cave. That's what happens in the movie. But he doesn't do it with his words. He does it with the blood of an innocent lady. Like, the reason the spell Mm. works is not because he said different names for the devil. I mean, that's all the spell is. He just says different devil names, and then there's a fucking (laughs) series of, of caves. No, 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 no. What makes the spell work is the blood, right? The words are probably don't matter at all. It's it's the fucking blood that does the actual work, and I thought that was like the biggest metaphor for white colonialism I've ever heard of. You know, <laughs> that like years years later, you're like, my ancestor did this with his will and his words, and it's like, no, he did it by spilling the blood of innocent people. Actually, that's actually how yeah. we ended up here. Uh, that and, is and,
1: actual colonialism definition at that yeah, point. No? and I
0: and I don't know that that was an intentional sort of uh, metaphor per se, but it hit me real hard because like as soon as he said it I'm like well that's not true he didn't just say some magic words or whatever he he murdered somebody and then not only that the caves stay open and the spell keeps working because y'all keep murdering people it's just blood again and again and again the blood is what keeps the foundation open and I think that's you know something that we miss about modern society anyways th- th- hate to beat that horn this is the third time I've brought this up but I don't care uh, I, I promise I, w- I won't bring it up again
1: I'm done with it for the record it's the first time I've heard it so you know it's there cool. you go <laughs> dope so yeah so fear street anything else
0: that's that is actually really it for me I've been watching some TV with my baby I've been uh, we're almost done the final season of pose um, mm-hmm. we just watched the episode where pray Tell went back to visit his family that's a super powerful episode uh, but that's about it there's nothing else that like you know I, I haven't been able to get out to the movies again um i'm really hoping to get out and see roadrunner uh, i hear great things about it and i really need to see it but that's about it for me how about you josh what yeah. else you got going
1: on so uh recently i watched the new Nicolas cage movie uh pig have you seen this movie i have not but justin said it was great i loved it i didn't think i was gonna love it i mean to be why fair, not listeners of the show know Your boy Joe over here loves Nick Cage. I love Nick Cage, goddamn Him and McConaughey. Love them both. Um, And this movie, I went into it being like, yo, Nick Cage doesn't love a pig? Okay, well, you know, it's Nick. What am I going to do? Not watch it? That sounds equally ridiculous than loving a pig. So then I went into this movie with Milani watching it, and um, it was number one. I didn't watch any trailers. I didn't read anything. I just watched it. And I was pleasantly surprised. It is a good movie. Further, it features the young man from *Hereditary*, speaking of, a little callback to another Ari Aster film, um, uh-huh. and it's it's the son from *Hereditary*, and he's uh, he's really good in it as like kind of like the shitty restauranteur, and um, like there's there's just a lot of stuff in the movie because it's about like high culture restaurant foodie culture and like the exoneration of chefs and all this other stuff. Then basically the story is you meet Nick Cage in the woods and the man doesn't leave his door closed. He doesn't have electricity or a bath. He's just a wood man, like lives in the woods. And uh, he has a friend, that's his pig. And his pig can find truffles. And, uh, you know, truffles are like food gold, right? I don't even know what it is. It tastes like mushroom. It's like something awesome. I know when I taste a truffle what truffle tastes like. But uh, I, I wouldn't say that I have that much of a developed palate, Liam. That I'm like aware of like all the nuances, mm. nor am I even really acquainted with the culture of foodieism. Like you know, I know what I know, and I like what I like, and I know like you know, I know stuff just because. But, but you're a same. bit of
0: a, but you're a bit of a philistine.
1: I'm a bit of a philistine. This is definitely true, but. I mean, again, Milani used to work for Steven Starr for a while, so like, you know, we we got like a weird front seat to like a lot of like the food culture in Philadelphia. And there's a lot here, Liam. You know what I mean? I know it's not like Chicago deep dish pizza with like quiche and like cheese, but like it's it's there's a Phil- there's a Philadelphia food scene. You understand? Are you suggesting? And, uh, so, are you
0: suggesting that I like deep dish pizza?
1: <laughs> I'm suggesting that your locality would would uh, re- desire that you do so. That's neither here nor there, Liam. That's not what I'm talking about because I'm talking about the food scene here in Philadelphia and or Portland where this movie takes place. Like, that's real. That's not real. Anyway, so this movie takes place in Portland and um, our man, Nick Cage, is a, a pig that can find truffles real good. And then one day in the middle of the night, he sells these truffles to the restauranteur, which is the kid from Hereditary. And then out of nowhere... Someone breaks into Nick Cage's house in the woods that doesn't have, like, a lock on the door, I don't think, because, like, he never closes it. And then they steal the pig. They steal Nick Cage's pig, Liam. Why are you going to steal the man's pig? He doesn't have a shower. And so Nick Cage ends up, like, kind of, like, conscripting the restaurateur child to take him to the city to find his goddamn pig, which, you know, it's basically John Wick with a pig, but there's no action Nick Cage doesn't really, like, get some John Wick on, you know what I'm saying? But, like, there's a bunch of stuff that happens to him, and it's, like, a bummer, and, um, you know, you realize that Nick Cage was, like, X, Y, and Z, and, like, so the story unfolds from there. Central to this story, though, is this relationship between Nick Cage and The Peak. And um, it's good, man. It's a heart melter. It's, like, genuinely, like, well-acted, and I think it's really well shot, and I mean, I'm into it. I think it looked good,
0: and all the descriptions I've read... Have really made it sound like awesome, you know, just this right away. It's eye like
1: out. genuinely so good because, like, it conflates these concepts of high art and like culinary art with philosophy, as most people, like, you know, like your Anthony Bourdain's of the world, like, definitely don't just cook for cook, they cook because of like some type of way they see the world. So, this is completely like. It's like a movie that is predicated by that connection between, you know, presence and your place in the universe and the food that you make and consume. And um, it doesn't have any overarching like ecological like concern or anything like that. It doesn't like address like things like this on that level, but it addresses things like purpose and like uh, inertia and, you know, just deliberate life to which that's a that's. Regardless of the scene wherein you're trying to make this point, I kind of feel like that's a thing that is universal and that people can relate to. You know what I mean? And this movie, it's great. And let's not forget that my man Nick is crushing the shit in this role. He's doing the thing. It's great. Fucking love.
0: I love that. Everything about that makes me happy.
1: Dude, it's one hundred percent right up your alley. I don't know if I consider it a Lea movie, but um, it's definitely like um, like because you know, there's there's movies I think of when I see them. I'm like, oh, this is a Lea movie. You know what I mean? Mostly like what kind of like what kind of movies?
0: uh oh, mostly it. exploitation. I like movies. art yeah. movies
1: too. I know you do. I know you do. But if I were like, okay, so the thing is, like with Evo, I have movies that I consider Evo movies. They're kind of melancholy. They have a happy ending. Everything gets tied up very nicely. That's an Eva movie, you know, and uh, a Liam movie. There's some type of grit. Abel Ferrer is somehow involved. It's disgusting to a point. But then it's also got some type of aesthetic like quality that I definitely equate to the Liam sensibility. Does that make sense? Sure. I don't know if you know. I classify all my friends by the movies that I consider uh, like a grace movie is a grace movie. You know what I mean? Like those movies tend to be like action movies or like weird costuming movies. You know what I mean? A movie like the cell. I consider that a grace movie. Um, <laughs> my brother likes karate movies. So like a karate kid movie, I would, that's like Anthony movie. I all it, chances are if you're listening to this show and you're a not friend of the show, Dana, because the only movies that I equate with Dana are movies that apparently she doesn't like. Cause she doesn't like whimsy. Um, there is oh, a movie-
0: Dana, Dana likes spooky psychological movies or like haunting, like movies with like uh, weird religious themes, you know, she likes that kind of stuff.
1: Okay, that's cool. But my definition of Dana, like a Dana movie is a movie that she does not like. That being <laughs> a movie like The Princess Bride. Um, but yeah, if you're my friend in real life, IRL, uh, rest assured in knowing that there's a movie that I think of when I think of you. You know what I'm saying? So um, yeah, that said, moving on. I also saw the new movie by the director of Spotlight, a movie called Stillwater. It was directed by Tom McCarthy and starring Matt Damone and um, Abigail Breslin. Have have you heard about this movie at all? Uh,
0: Yeah, I've seen the trailer.
1: So I didn't see the trailer. All that I read about this is that Tom McCarthy and Matt Damon had talked to a bunch of oil riggers from Oklahoma to try and understand the role of this main character in the movie that Matt Damon's playing. And like this weird like uh, – all I read was that like, oh, yeah, they did a lot of research with like these like working class Trump people or whatever, which, you know, I get it. That's definitely part, pertinent to the storyline, you know what I mean? But that said, being that that was the only thing that I read, I went into this thinking that I wasn't going to be into it. I was like, okay, so this is going to be like one of those movies, you know? And the funny thing is that this movie is so much more than that. It's actually a very compelling story. So the story is that Abigail Breslin is the daughter of Matt Damon, right? She is in Marseille, France, in jail for allegedly murdering her roommate who she was having a lesbian relationship with. So then there's like this whole sensationalist story. And like the dad is a working class dude from the oil fields of Oklahoma, but he's unemployed, but he's like working construction and trying to save money. So he can go to Marseille like on a regular basis to see his daughter who is in prison for nine years. So the whole movie starts with him going to France and she's trying to have her case reopened by reaching out to the judge and she asks her dad to like talk to the judge for him that condemned her and see if she can reopen because of new evidence that has come up with DNA and all this other stuff. So this whole thing is kind of a send up of the Amanda Knox story, right? Which happened in like life, you know? Um, And it's actually really, really compelling. So Matt Damon, you realize that he was like kind of a bad dad this whole time and that um, there are, her mother, Abigail Breslin's mother, has a history of mental health and she had killed herself or she committed a suicide. So, like, there's all this stuff that's like just you kind of get to the story in the middle, like after the murders happened and she's been imprisoned and he's trying to, like, help her out. Right. And the movie goes from there. Like, it's basically uh, this father's quest to have her, do- his daughter exonerated he's trying to figure out because she's convinced that there was another person that said at a party that he had murdered the girl and never got caught. And so she does like this whole thing. And he tries to put the pieces together as best he can as an American in France. Now, here's the thing. The whole movie definitely addresses, like at the beginning, I was having a really hard time like sussing out who this movie is for, like who the audience is supposed to be for this movie. Because with these kinds of movies, I have this trepidation that it's going to be this jingoistic pro-America, like, well, Americans are going to get done with the grease of their elbows, like that kind of like narrative. And um, it definitely starts out in the same vein. For a minute, I felt like I was watching a Chuck Reagan album. Sure. Like it yeah. just sounds like he's got a mustache and a beard. You know what I mean? Like it's a, uh, and he's like very gruff. He looks like Tim Berry on a good day. And it's like, there's a lot of plaid, you know, in his wardrobe and, um, and it's fine, but he's in France, he's in Marseille. So it has this, sure, like it starts yeah. off with the touches of this, like, almost like a white messiah type complex, like a Dances with Wolves, like, well, America's here, so we're going to get it done. You know what I mean? Like that kind of concept. But as the movie moves forward, you realize that like his place in this entire mosaic of guilt and interplay of like of of just justice is you realize like to a degree like it's not even the fact that like these injustices are being committed upon him, but that this American presence in this like French idyll. Is what causes a lot of these issues to begin with, right? Sure. And then, like, there's just so it's funny because the movie's called Stillwater, which is the name of the town in Oklahoma where they're from. And um, during the whole movie, it doesn't even take place in America. So I'm like, why the fuck is this movie called Stillwater? Like, is the narrative that you know this down home American who still prays to Jesus every day and before every meal, like he's gonna get it done like they would done in Stillwater? You know what I mean, like that kind of thing. And it's so not, it is not that movie at all. It ends up in such a complicated place where things unfold and like things happen and like, it's kind of this kind of ending, but it also isn't because like there's all these other ancillary things that happen in the movie. And, uh, I found it to be very compelling. I thought it was like genuinely, and also maybe I just went in without any high explications. Although I did like spotlight. I definitely was like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, I, I took it for a face value movie going in and by the end of it it's a long movie it's like two and a half hour two hours and 20 minutes maybe and there are definitely pacing issues to the movie there are definitely some scenes that i think could have been cut but there's some genuine tension being built without violence in this movie and i think that's very that's tough. great and um matt damon like okay so when i read also is that a premiered at con and matt damon got a five minute standing ovation for his role in this movie, and then I saw the movie and I was like, "Did we watch the same movie?" But also, days later, I can't stop thinking about it. Which to me, I I think that that's an earmark of a very like well played and well constructed movie. Sure. So my review of this movie is that it's great. I think it's uh it's definitely worth seeing, but you have to go into it with an open heart, and I think that uh going in without any expectations is the best way to do it. So big recommend on Stillwater. That's
0: cool I mean that's That's better than what we were thinking Which is that It might end up being terrible
1: Yeah I was thinking We are going to get another Like Lone Gunman style Like Explosions in the Sky movie And I was like I I can't I can't take another 13 hours in Benghazi I I just can't do it I can't I'm done And so Like I, I You know I think it's fairly obvious to say we're not into those kinds of movies. You know what I mean? But like we'll watch anything. And uh, I, I definitely went into it thinking like, well, you know, it's probably going to be one of those, but I'll watch anything. So here we go. And lo and behold, pleasantly surprised. So yeah.
0: Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you were pleasantly surprised. That's good.
1: Yep. That's what I got. And I saw Loki. I liked it. Um, I saw a bunch of other things, I guess, here and there. Pig and Stillwater were the two big ones, though, that sure. I have. I started watching that Kill Bill, the whole bloody mess thing. Have you not and, seen uh, it before? I've not seen the whole cut.
0: No. Whoa, I've seen it on film twice now. That's crazy.
1: Famously, the day that uh I had tickets to go see it at the international house when Tarantino gifted it for the Philadelphia for two screenings or whatever, I caught pneumonia and your boy got stuck in a hospital.
0: Oh, I do remember I that. Yes, it.
1: yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. yeah. I sold the ticket to a, a gentleman in a kilt. Yeah. So, I know, Well,
0: happens. we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk about two neo-noir films. Uh, both of these were new to you, right? Is that right, Josh? Yes. yes uh, really. Only one was new to me, but I'll tell you what, I've only watched The Long Goodbye one other time, and so revisiting it was still a joy. So we're going to talk about The Long Goodbye and The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. We'll be right back. <laughs>
1: One thirty-seven. Our discussion on *Neo nua We're talking about two movies. <laughs> *Neo nua <laughs> That's French, baby. It's called French. Uh, we're talking about *The Long Good Night*. Goodbye. Right. Goodbye. Goodbye. See, see, and that's the funny thing. Uh, to be, to be fair, I thought I was picking the *Long Good Night* because that's a movie that stars um, the dude that was in um, *Doomsday*. What's the fucking? Hold on. What? You thought you were choosing The Long Good Night? Yeah. Why? No, The Long Good Friday with Bob Hoskins. That's what I was thinking of when you brought it up. I was like, oh, yeah, I really wanted to see that movie with Bob Hoskins. And then, uh, you're a the-
0: crazy person.
1: <laughs> yeah. You're the and worst. The Long Good Friday was on there. And uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that's the movie we're watching. And then I picked it, and then we watched it. I was like, Bob Hoskins is not in this movie, sir. There no. is no Bob no. Hoskins, to be found. No. no, no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I fucked that up. But I'm okay with it. I can admit that because I'm a big enough man, Liam. I make mistakes. I thought you're all often. excited.
0: I thought you're all excited to do a Robert Altman film. It turns out you didn't even have the right film. You know, I didn't even
1: know. But no, I mean, that said, I am stoked on Robert Altman and I'm stoked on Elliot Gould, who, as I told you before, should be the topic of our Elliot Gould film marathon that I have named Solid Gould, the movies of <laughs> Elliot Gould.
0: I don't know that I want to do that, but sure, sure, sure. <laughs> It's just good enough
1: because of the pun.
0: Solid Gould. So you didn't know anything about this movie going in then, since you didn't even think it was this movie. You thought it was a different movie altogether.
1: I mean, when you say it like that, it sounds like I'm dumb, which I'm not.
0: <laughs> just because you made a dumb, I mean, just because you made a dumb mistake, doesn't make you dumb.
1: Also, <laughs> also <laughs> debatable. But I, no, I thought that I just you said these names. You're like, we should do this. So you sent me the list that was on Criterion. I was like, oh, I wonder if that's the Bob Hoskins movie. So I had no concept because I didn't see that that movie either, clearly. Um, I just knew that, like, I do like noir movies. You know what I mean? So neo-noir, like, why would that not be up our alley? You know what I'm saying? You okay, Liam? You COVID acting up?
0: <coughs> no, I took a drink while you were talking and it went down the wrong tube. So now I'm joking. Hold mm-hmm. on.
1: That's not that's not choking. That's that's Jesus telling you you should be listening to Joey more
0: and not I am drink. listening. I'm laughing at what a ridiculous weirdo <laughs> you are, but
1: <clears throat> Okay, uh-huh. so that's a, that's so it's not a it's
0: it's not a Bob Hoskins movie. What did you think of this movie that we actually
1: watched? Oh, I fucking loved it. It's funny too, because this is not the first um Philip Marlowe movie I've seen. I've seen movies about Philip Marlowe starring Powers Booth in the role.
0: And I forget what
1: movies those were, but I saw them a long time ago, and I remember thinking, like, man, this Philip Marlowe is a hard-nosed gumshoe. What a dick. And um, so realizing that this was a Philip Marlowe movie made me stoked. And that it was a Robert Altman movie also made me stoked.
0: Well, from what I've read, I think people who are big fans of the – Raymond Chandler novel that this is based off of don't necessarily love this movie. You know, I, I think there's, there's quite a few reviews that are like great movie, terrible adaptation. Uh, but you know what? I don't know anything about that book. I just know this movie and this movie's fucking amazing. I mean, <clears throat> I, I'll, I'll admit one of my gray areas, maybe not gray areas, blind spots is Robert Altman. Uh, I know three women, I know a couple of other Altman movies including Popeye but uh but I wouldn't say I'm an Altman expert and and you know when we make these claims we might be suggesting the opposite thing. So I also want to be clear, I'm not expecting all of our listeners to be Altman experts either. If you don't know Robert Altman, I I don't want you to feel like you failed as a film fan. But he is a director that matters to a lot of people and certainly mattered Mm -hmm. at this time. Um, And the movies I have seen, I think, are really great. So he's definitely on my list of directors I want to explore more of, which was part of my excitement for doing this. Although I have seen this before, my desire to watch it was sort of based out of this idea where um, I refuse to accept that Elliot Gould was ever a sex symbol, and I know that he was. Right, that there are people who talk about these movies he did in the seventies, and they're like, "Ooh, that Elliot Gould," and I'm like, "But Elliot Gould, though, really? Like, I, I just had trouble." with it. Eleven guy,
1: like, come yeah. on, man, really? That so guy?
0: I straight up watched this movie the first time I watched it because it was available on Criterion. It wasn't part of this collection yet, but it was on Criterion, and I thought. You know, it's an Altman film. It's got supposedly attractive Gould. I guess I'll just watch it and see what it is. And while I don't know that I would call him sexy, he is so fully charming debonair, and debonair is, yeah. and whatever in this film that I could see why people find him attractive. Like he is doing something in this movie. And honestly, and this is no disrespect to Robert Altman as a director. Elliot Gould fucking makes this movie. This is his movie. He eats it up top to bottom. And even when he's... so good. Even when he's acting fucking insane, you're still with it. Like, the parts where he's just mumbling, and I don't even understand why he's mumbling, I just think, well, I just don't get it. Like, it makes sense, because I just believe him in this role. And I thought maybe on rewatch for this recording it would be less interesting to me. But I think this movie is... um, Considering, so let's back up a little bit and talk about what this movie is. So, uh, Elliot Gould is Philip Marlowe. He's a private eye. He is, like many private eyes, a fuck up. And he gets caught up in a bunch of drama around one of his friends who he claims to know very well, who uh, disappears after his wife dies. Uh, And when he disappears, he disappears with a bunch of money that belongs to a local gangster. And so immediately, because uh, Philip Marlowe drives him to Tijuana, Tijuana. not, not knowing that the dude's wife is dead drives into to Tijuana, he immediately is under inspection by the police, by the gangster looking for his money, he gets caught up with another couple of, uh, who he's somewhat connect. he finds out he's somewhat connected to through this guy all this stuff mm-hmm. goes on and what the way I, I want to describe this is this is the classic P.I. rides the wave of things happening around him, like one of the things you could say about the Big Lebowski, right, mm-hmm. which is sort of like a, a, a a caricature of a noir film is that Mm. the big Lebowski doesn't do anything like Jeff Lebowski, the big Lebowski, the dude,
1: the other Jeffrey, the other
0: Jeffrey Lebowski, right? Things just happen to him. He does no proactive thing. The entire movie for, for the most part, that's what this movie is perplexed the whole time. That's what this movie is, you know, and I'll tell you what, he doesn't make a full decision. And do something active until the end of the movie, which, spoiler alert, uh, if you haven't seen this movie, I'm about to spoil the ending for you. (laughs) When he discovers that actually his friend really is on the lamb and really did kill his wife, he does the first active thing in the whole movie and he shoots his friend. And it is a fucking unbelievable revolutionary moment in the narrative of this film. It's like he it's has such a cool moment. It's, too, because unbelievable. it's like
1: a weird justice di- driven. It's like a principled motion. Yeah. That happens from a dude who's like in no uncertain terms, a member of the seedy underbelly of California, LA life. Yeah.
0: That's so good. And he just rides along. Everything he does is in response to something else until that moment. And you could say, well, that's in response too, but it is an active decision. It is a proactive movement in a way that nothing else in the movie is. And it's just – that juxtaposition is so good. I don't know. I I don't know about you, Josh, but I already love – these kind of private eye movies, and and that's coming mm-hmm. from someone who's only seen maybe six or so noir films. But even even mm-hmm. films that are sort of borrowing from or even ripping off the noir tradition, I like that vibe. Mm-hmm. You know, I even like the TV shows. Yeah. I'm a Veronica Mars fan. Let's just put it out there. All right,
1: <laughs> what uh, was the name for Veronica Mars fans? Marshmallows or some shit? Yeah, I think that time. I,
0: I didn't call myself that. I don't think that's
1: No, true. you self-identified on uh, an episode of Cinecraft as a fuck. marshmallow.
0: How yeah. do you remember mm-hmm. that? How do you remember that? Because you
1: to. said I'm a marshmallow, and I had no idea what the fuck you were talking about, and that's not a thing you forget, Liam. It's All not.
0: right. All right. Here's the point. I like these kind of movies already, but there's something about, mm. there's something about the way that Elliot Gould's Philip Marlowe just floats along smoking in every scene, just yeah, responding. And
1: he's got a suit on. He's got a suit and necktie on in every he, scene. He and refuses
0: to take any of these assholes seriously. He's continually just responding to monsters around him. And then he's so motivated, even though he you're right, he's a part of the CD underbelly, he's still motivated most of the movie by loyalty and compassion that's really in what is moving him, yeah. in principle and then to finally find out that he's on the wrong side it's a, just a fucking step too far it's just he's been pushed too far at this point and he's mm. got to do something and i don't know i just something about this movie is makes it such an all-timer for me and yeah. uh and really encapsulates a kind of time period in LA that i find fascinating
1: I agree. Like his his Philip Marlowe in Los Angeles in this seventies era is so timeless, right? Like, yeah. Again, I've seen other Powers Booth movies, or I've seen other um, Philip Marlowe movies where Powers Booth is played like more like well, Philip Marlowe is played by Powers Booth in such of uh, like a like a Cagney style character, right? Like sure. A, yeah. yeah she, like this, like hard nosed gumshoe doing the thing. In this movie, Elliot Gould embodies the moment of 1970s Los Angeles in such a way that he is seamless in his interjection into this life.
0: Well, he seems seamless, too, because he seems anachronistic that if we were there, we'd see this asshole smoking in his suit and go, where did this guy wander in from? Like, where did he
1: even come from? It's so good though, because it yeah. doesn't feel anachronistic, right? Like right. he feels like he was like, that's who you call when your husband goes missing in a mental hospital. Like that's basically what happens. Like to the, and it's just the storyline. I, 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 found to be very compelling. And, um, I was, there wasn't, it's it, as long as, um, as the Cassavetes movie, but I feel like each, like this movie is so well paced, which is a credit to Altman, I think. Yes. And, um, his editing team, like this movie, is so. There's no wasted moment, and Schwarzenegger's there. What the this fuck is, is that about
0: only his second role ever. Arnold Schwarzenegger just in the movie, just hanging out. No, um,
1: being Schwarzenegger,
0: I want to say there's a moment earlier in the film when he's interacting with the same character that he's uh, interacting with with the Schwarzenegger scene. There's yeah. a moment where that man commits an act of violence, and yeah, as Josh it's has already so said, horrific. and and any any person who listens to this show knows. I watch some fucked up shit. I watch some horrific shit. I watch some uh-huh. boundary pushing shit. And I and I don't love violence against women. I think that's one of the places where maybe I'm more sensitive than other people who enjoy exploitation films. But um, I don't think I'm so sensitive that I can't watch anything. But I will say that moment for a film in which most of the movie is not unpleasant. It's upsetting mm-hmm. at times, but it's not unpleasant. But
1: there's a whimsy to it, except yes, for yes. that scene.
0: That scene yeah. is so fucked. And again, it's just, I, I don't want to say it's just, but compared to other things I've seen, a man hits a woman in the face for really no justifiable reason with a Coke bottle, right? But the a way glass it's, Coke bottle. A glass Coke bottle. The way it's filmed and the way it works in the scene, it's one of the more upsetting moments in a film I've ever seen, and I think that's on purpose. I don't think that was like... Oh, I filmed this thing and it's actually more upsetting now that it exists in the world. I think it's th- there's a point. It's a reminder that like Marlowe is goofing and like half stepping and whatever through a world that has real fucking consequences. That is actually yeah. dark, that is actually violent. And and it's a reminder that like these gangster characters are not charming and redeemable. This man is the no. fucking worst from he's the moment he's the there worst. you hate him.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, he is awful in this goddamn movie. I mean, yeah. well played—that's the yeah. point. But yeah. man, what a bad guy! Oof.
0: But I like the idea that Marlow, as this man of principle and character, is still completely outside the system. Like he's still mm-hmm. kind of a of a of a degenerate fuck-up, even though he's a good person, and how that mm. can exist in this world. Also, his random naked lady neighbors are the best as well,
1: by the way. Yeah, that are doing yoga. He's like, I don't know, it's called yoga. <laughs> it's so good. When,
0: when the cops are like, oh, his neighbor's making hash brownies, but they're like, don't give a fuck. They're like, we're not here for
1: that. You That's know? <laughs> so great.
0: But, you know, there's also this aspect to it, and I don't know if this is you know, Altman making this decision, or this is just part of the story, but there's a lot of sub, sublimated gender politics going on here, right? Yeah, for sure. A lot yeah. of wives in peril, girlfriends in peril, men thinking it's their world and they can do whatever the fuck they want in various ways, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. then Marlo finds this this friend who he has – he's gone to hell and back to defend this man. To he yeah. he's he's traveled all over, and he's put himself in danger all because of this man, and to find out that this man actually killed his wife, actually fucking beat her to death. The moment he shoots this, there's no part of you that's like, oh my god, I didn't see that. I mean, not that it's not a surprise, but it's not an upsetting surprise. It's like, oh. Yeah, that's right. Shoot that motherfucker. Like it feels, and this is from a character. Keep in mind, Philip Marlowe has not committed a single act of violence for the whole film. Despite being threatened, attacked himself, put in danger, the man doesn't do violence until this moment. And yet, this transgressive moment of violence utterly justifies. You literally are like, yeah, that's right. Shoot him again. Give him a couple more shots before you leave. It's unbelievable. And then the film, Josh, that ending, when he's walking down the road and they're playing the fucking Hollywood song. I mean, you know.
1: It's so good, right?
0: I got to say, one of the things I wanted to ask you about to see if you picked up on it, but there are a couple of commentators on Letterboxd who said that the film is in some ways a metaphor for Hollywood itself. That That's one of the things it's dealing with at sort of a meta level. And I got to be honest, yeah, I could kind of see it, but I didn't really pick up on it. Were you able to pick up on anything that had you yeah. thinking about Hollywood, uh, the phenomena of,
1: of old Hollywood? It definitely speaks to this concept of this everyman fixer. Right, that Philip Marlowe is involved in these multiple things that all lends to this one bigger picture, which feels like a Hail Caesar type character, like Josh Brolin's character in Hail Caesar. Like, um, what was the other movie that was about like the grandeur? Oh like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Manc, yeah. Like Mank, you know, the Mank movie about sure. uh, with uh, yeah. it, it feels like it speaks to that. Although, although I hate that like, movie. That movie sucks. I I liked it. It speaks to I that. I know. Like, I
0: know. We talked about it at the time, and I was like, "You're a crazy
1: person." But it speaks to that like ubiquitous interpersonality that's just got finger in everything. I definitely picked up on it in uh, in that. That to be clear, the scene when the song plays when he's walking down the street and he passes the lady and all that stuff like that's the only time that I thought about it. Like, oh yeah, he kind of navigates all these circles with ease. Right. And again, (laughs) he just kind of breezes through the whole thing. So I definitely can see that as like an indictment of this hollywood culture where you defend until you realize that you're on the wrong side
0: yeah i don't know um, i it's totally possible it's just it's to a couple of people it seemed really obvious that's what was going on and for me mm -hmm. until i heard that song i didn't really pick up on that and even now it's a tenuous connection for me but i Mm -hmm. you know i'm not saying they're wrong i just it's you know we as a viewer you don't always pick up on every layer of something you know
1: Yeah, no, it definitely made sense to me. I mean, like, or that makes sense to me. But also, like, here's the thing. I don't really have a deep history with Altman either, but I do really like Shortcuts because Tom Waits was in it, which is why I watched it. Sure. And have you seen Shortcuts? I have not. So Shortcuts is a collection of, uh, it's like a three-hour movie, but it's all like Raymond Carver stories, like told in vignettes. So from what I know about Altman, it's got that, like, it's very California, right? But it's got these weird like uh, roiling underbelly type narratives where like there's a thing that happens on the surface, but there's the thing just below that surface that's a lot more intimidating, a lot more sinister, a lot more um, impactful than what's actually happening on the surface. So that's what I took going into this movie. And I definitely feel like that's Philip Marlowe personified by Elliot Gould. In this movie, that he's got this breezy way about him, but there's like, like we said, there's a seriousness, which again can also be like equated to like the whole Hollywood persona of this time. Sure, sure. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, I see it. Is my point?
0: Yeah, I have such a, love I have such a weird limited Altman. Like uh, I saw Gosford Park, which I didn't know when I was saw it. Altman I didn't movie. I didn't know anything about Altman. Yeah, well, it's like mm-hmm. even if I knew the name, I didn't know who he was as a figure enough to be like oh i'm watching an altman film um i've Mm. seen come back to the five and dime jimmy dean jimmy dean um Mm. i've seen popeye um i've seen three women which is right now still my favorite altman film Mm. it's just it's an unbelievable if if people are listening who haven't seen three women it's unbelievable Uh, i've seen nashville of course oh nashville's Um, great yeah you know, I actually have seen Thieves Like Us, but I don't remember much about it. I saw it when I was pretty young. And, it, you know, if, if you were like, well, what's it about I would have trouble. Uh Right now, my second favorite Altman after The Long Goodbye and Three Women, which might be sort of uh, equal, is McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Have you ever seen that?
1: No, I have not.
0: So one of the things to keep in mind, you know, Altman went through a period where he was doing sort of uh, genres that were not his usual thing. Like he was taking these classic Hollywood genres. So the first one he did that with was this McCabe and Mrs. Miller in which he takes Mm. all the classic stereotypes of Western films and kind of turns them on Mm. their ear, you know? It's just the. It's almost like the anti-Western, but in which it's still very much a Western film. Uh, And then he does Mm. images, which I think is like kind of a horror film. I don't know much about Mm. it, so I don't want to say too much about it. And then he does the long goodbye. But what's interesting about the long goodbye, and and I want to get your take on this, it's not the anti-noir film. It's like a completion of noir. It's it's almost like a perfectly noir film just in a new yeah. context with new
1: ideas does that make sense i think it moves i mean like what's your what is your relationship with like classic noir oh wait
0: movies? shit like, shit one more thing i have to say mash i always forget that's how i know altman <laughs> he directed the mash movie like yeah which of right. course i only saw the movie after watching the show for years like i was uh Like it was in syndication, of course, because I wasn't Mm -hmm. aware of it when it was on TV. But in syndication, I watched M.A.S.H religiously and it was only later like high school where i was like there's a movie and i watched the movie <laughs> but that's that was like when i first became aware of altman even though i had no idea that's the guy that did gosford park does that make sense you know kind of yeah, like kind of like how i watched big trouble in little china for years before i figured out it's the guy who did halloween my favorite horror movie you know what i mean like it took me <laughs> yeah, a long yeah, time yeah, to yeah. figure that out anyways so like, we oh. so my relationship so to, yeah so to war movies is complicated because I've seen a few and I should know a lot about it because, um, you'll remember right after seminary, when I was living in Philly and me and you were first like hanging out more, mm-hmm. I was still obsessed with the idea that I was going to go back to school. And that was when I first discovered, uh, online education. There's a bunch of platforms. I don't know if they still exist as much as they did then. This is like 2012, uh, mm-hmm. 2013. Um, But there were these big online classes, and so I decided, with the help of my mom, to sign up for one of these classes that was a little more expensive. And it was an online film class about film noir, and I bought three textbooks and whatever. But as you'll remember, during that time period when I was working at Broad Street, I didn't have a lot of free time. So I actually only attended three of the classes and then the rest, I was like, Oh yeah, I'll get back to them later because they're online. I can do them whenever. And then I never fucking did it. And I never read the books and I only watched four of the movies. So considering I've only probably seen like eight noir films, like that was like half of my noir films were for this class. And yet I still don't feel like I know anything about film noir despite being in this class because I got so busy. And then of course it's all limited, right? So like at a certain point, I tried to go back to watch the lectures and I couldn't see them anymore because the time period had <laughs> ended. So I basically fucked myself on that. I still have those books and I do plan to revisit them at some point, um, but mm-hmm. I just haven't had a chance to go back and learn. And, it, you know, of what I've seen, I very much like film noir. But as you know, I, I, I do have a little bit of a barrier between me and what I would call old white people shit. You know, it's kind of like, yeah. you know, I was I was talking to a friend about this. I think for a long time I thought I didn't like musicals and I mm. realized I just don't like old white people shit. Right. And a lot of <laughs> a lot of classic musicals were made at a time mm. where things were filled with old white people shit. But it. But that doesn't mean the idea of people singing in and of itself actually bums me out at all. Because when I saw more modern musicals, even some of the ones that are technically not great musicals, they didn't bum me out because they were musicals, right? It wasn't that. It was that I just have a barrier between me and some smiley, fake-ass people being fake. Now, that's not what you get in film noir, but there is a certain amount of like – you know. Uh, there's a barrier for me to get past. Now, granted, of these sort of eight films I've seen, I think I'm I'm guessing i probably about eight or nine. I'd have to sit down and count. Um, mm. I like them all. I don't think I've ever seen a noir film I thought was bad, but I just haven't mm. made the effort to be like, all right, let's search through and find the classics of the genre and really jump mm. in the way I should.
1: Right. I get it. So I don't know. see for me. My relationship with classic noir is definitely um, dictated by my relationship with nitrate film. In that, Melanie and I, you know, for listeners of the show, they know that I, like you know, before pandemic, we've made it a tradition that every year we go to Rochester, New York, at the beginning of May, for the Nitrate Film Festival at the Eastman, the George Eastman Museum, which is, houses like the biggest collection of nitrate prints, which is all movies that were struck before 1951. So my introduction to noir movies was through that. But that said, I've seen, like, a lot, it turns out. Like, I've seen movies like um, the Razor's Edge, star- um, directed by Edward uh, Edmund Golding from 1946. Uh, movies like Cry of the City, directed by Jean uh, genre big. Like, like Robert Siadmak is, like, the dude, he was the dude that directed, like, a bunch of, like, the classic noir movies, you know what I mean? Like, the Tyrone Powers-style ones. Um, other movies like Nightmare Alley, um... Let me think. What are other ones? Like, I just realized now, like, going through it just for this episode, like, oh, yeah, I did see, like, kind of a lot of the classics. So that way, going into The Long Good Night, like, or The Long Goodbye, like, that's – it's familiar to me in that way, right? That I do see, like, the DNA of noir film and, like, the whole, like, um, Dead Reckoning-style Humphrey Bogart, like, Shadow and Fog kind of storytelling, even though it's told in this, like, beautiful – I mean, the criterion transfer is amazing and it looks gorgeous like the film print of this, but um, it definitely feels like this is like the direct translation of that onus, right? Like that, that telling of what can be told as a, or what can be cited as a typically noir setting of double crosses and like all these, like, just like plotted out, like um, buried points if you will. And even like when it comes down to like when he's trying to find his friend in Tijuana and they're like, he's dead. And then he sees all the pictures in the morgue and they're saying, oh, well we had to go to the hotel to get ice to keep the body. Like that kind of like stuff is a very noir touch, like a classic, right? Like classic noir trope, but also like Altman shoots it in such a way that I can imagine for the seventies felt modern because it even feels like kind of modern take on it now. Right does that make any sense or
0: no totally he definitely so there's a few decisions he makes like one of the things is the camera is like always moving but it's often yeah. not moving in the direction that the
1: uh, uh, actors are moving you know it's it's yeah it's, it's like a weird prestidigitation yeah. of camera yeah. focus right like yeah. it just this like the magic trick of this kind of storytelling
0: yeah yeah um yeah i don't know i i um it's hard because, like I said, it's hard for me to compare this, but it feels like a lot of the tropes that I associate with noir are here, but in this mm. entirely different format that makes it feel new and, and unique as well.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that in the Cassavetti's movie, in uh, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, yeah, yeah. That the, camera, the camera plays a lot more of a role in it which kind of for me furthered that movie from what my definition of classic noir was is
0: well let's let's jump into that like so, so you know uh, wrap up on the long uh, goodbye um there's 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 Altman is so artistic in the film that there's almost an abstract aspect to it, like the way that mm. every musical cue is this song, The Long Goodbye, that is not actually like a stand... Like, no one's going to know this song. It's not like, yeah. oh yeah, The Long Goodbye, it's it's a classic. No one knows the song. But <laughs> no it's every, song. Yeah, yeah. almost every scene, there's a version of The Long Goodbye at some point. You know what I mean? Whether mm. it's an intro yeah. or an outro or it's in the background. That creates almost a nightmare feel to the movie, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. I agree. But I think there's... And also...
1: Elliot Gould is a solid Gould in the movie. Oh my, I knew you were going to do that. (laughs) Fuck.
0: (laughs) Point is, the movie's great. You should make it, you should, you should make an effort to see it. I, I, all I was going to say is it has this weird abstract kind of nightmare quality to it under the surface, but the movie itself is very straightforward. And I think anyone who appreciates a good kind of like, weird mystery drama thing would would be into yeah. it uh it's well, not well
1: told gumshoe drama
0: it has tension it's not exciting but it has enough tension I think to keep it going you know what I mean mm-hmm. and Elliot Gould just carry he's unbelievable it, it makes me appreciate him as an actor so much more than I ever have I think before so Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk about The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which is a uh can I just say up front, very Cassavetes movie. I was thinking this is, ah, this, is this is gonna so good. this is gonna be the movie that changes my view on Cassavetes, which is still positive, but like he's a very specific filmmaker. I thought, well, th- if this is a Neo Noir, it's gonna be a different thing from him. No, no, no. This is still a Cassavetes movie. No amount yeah. of 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 gunfights and danger will change how Cassavetes makes a movie
1: ever. <laughs> And no amount of gunfights and violence or implied violence will ever unseat Cassavetes from the central portion of any of these movies, Right. for sure. Like, every single movie that we've seen by Cassavetes thus far, right? Like, including the ones that we used for that episode on Cassavetes, is, like, these are all weird self-portraits of him and his place in his reality. And he's using genre to, like, just further expound upon that self-portrait. And in this movie, he uses Ben Gazzara to do it, which I gotta say, Ben Gazzara is amazing in this movie. So, what's this movie about, Liam? You picked this movie. Why did you pick this movie? And what is it about?
0: Well, as I said, I only picked it because it's a Cassavetes movie, and I wanted to see a Cassavetes movie. That being said, okay, um, Ben Gazzara is a club. <clears throat> excuse me, is a club owner, uh, very much a New York guy in L.A., which I think is a whole thing. You know, mm, um, yeah. and he has this club that's not quite a strip club, but is very much a scantily clad ladies' club. One night, a gentleman comes through uh, with a bunch of people who says he loves the club, and he says, Oh, I have a club too, but it's a gambling joint down in, um, uh, in Santa, uh, Santa, Santa Monica. Monica. Yeah. So, Hank gets all stoked that he's going to get the hookup down at this place. Gets together his ladies from the club, goes down, and loses twenty three thousand dollars just in the fucking Which, hole.
1: Now, as a person who's a casino worker, I got to say that's not that weird. But go on.
0: Well, it's in seventies dollars, but yes, oh yeah, 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 still. yeah
1: but still, yeah, yeah. Go on, uh, go on.
0: Regardless, he doesn't have that fucking money. He just he he literally is just trying to be a big roller. And you kind of get the feeling that's who he is. That's why he has the club. He's trying to be more than who he is in some ways. And so he, you know, in an effort to look like a big deal, spends way more money than he has, uh, loses all this money, and soon realizes that the gentlemen to which he is now indebted at this gambling establishment are serious gentlemen. They are not chill dudes. They are, in fact... um, Gangsters gangsters basically you know maybe not the mob specifically but you know organized gentlemen of crime and uh they uh slowly pressure him into committing a murder for them uh after sort of threatening him and and he's kind of coming apart at the seams we get some good character moments and, and we learn that one of these ladies that he's out with is his actual girlfriend and um we, we, we just slowly over, as this stuff develops, get to see more of him as a character, which is like he's a little on edge, you know, but he's also not going to not deliver on this thing. If this is what he has to do, then this is what he has to do. So he goes to, uh, you know, as the title suggests, kill a Chinese bookie, although it turns out the man he kills is actually a big fucking deal. And he has to kill a lot of people on his way out to get out of there. Mm. Uh, he still gets shot on his way out. Uh, and then when he gets back, uh, of course, these gentlemen—they're um, not comfortable with a loose end named Ben Gazzar just sort of wandering around. Although that's not his name in the film; his name is uh, uh, what is his name in the film again? It's it's uh, Cosmo. Cosmo. Cosmo, yeah. Cosmo uh, the Telly. Yeah, they they decide that Cosmo's got it, gotta go, uh, and so then he he's put on put on the spot yet again. Um, It is a truly Cassavetes movie. It drops you in in a way where you're like, wait, did the movie start? And it ends in a way where you're like, wait, is that the end of the movie? Which is just perfect Cassavetes, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's so Um,
0: good. And, you know, it is – compared to The Long Goodbye, it is not clearly a noir film, even though on a plot point, if you put the ideas and the plot points of the movie on a piece of paper – it is definitely a noir film. It is like a noir yeah. noir film, but in how it actually plays out, it's almost like so much of what you associate with a noir film is taken out of this thing, and it becomes something else entirely, um, and yet it still fits within this tradition. It's really interesting. What did you think of it, Josh?
1: I truly loved it. I loved it so much, especially doing the research and prep for this episode, like reading about... Um, just Cassavetti's perspective on this whole thing, and like how, again, he's, he's the interjection of this entire movie, and he's like the overarching like storyline that he's trying to tell, right? But he's doing it through the lens of this pseudo noir, neo noir movie. And um, I found it to be very compelling, man. I thought it was really, really good. Um, one of the IMDb trivias about it is that David Bowie's in a bunch of the scenes, in the club scenes when they're watching the girls and stuff. Huh. I couldn't even imagine David huh. Bowie just hanging out in the 70s with John Cassavetes and John Cassavetes being like, David, I'm filming this movie. You want to be in the club scene? And David Bowie just so like, hey, random. I'm sure I'm like that. And it's like 73. Like, what year was this? This was. Um, hold on. Let me look. Well, I mean, keep in uh, mind. Keep,
0: keep in mind. Right. He probably just went next door to his neighbor, Frank Zappa. And fucking (laughs) Bowie was just there hanging out, not getting high because Zappa didn't like drugs. And uh, (laughs) probably, you know, Bowie probably left Zappa's house to go to Cassavetti's house to
1: get high, actually. (laughs) Makes sense. Makes sense. But we were also talking about 76 Bowie. So we're talking after Ziggy Stardust Bowie, like right after, like Aladdin Sane era Bowie. Like, that's just cool. I just, I mean, I didn't see him in any of the scenes, but that's the legend, right? Um, that said, this is, uh, I brought
0: up the Zappa thing, y'all, because uh, I literally had just watched the Zappa documentary when we watched (laughs) faces last time. And it turns out the house that faces was filmed at was right next door to where Zappa lived when he lived in the, in in LA and they just were neighbors. And that's fucking weird, man. It's fucking weird.
1: (laughs) It's such a good movie. Like I truly did love this movie. I think it's like, like, like I said, Ben Gazzara, my relationship with Ben Gazzara started with Buffalo 69 or Buffalo 66, right? And, um, not Roadhouse. Big, big LeBaski. Not Big Lebowski? Uh, yeah, he's Jackie Treehorn, But the, the funny thing about that, and I was thinking about this as I was watching it, is that, um, He's still the same character from the Big Lebowski yeah, in this movie,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. which is ja- also
1: the same character from Roadhouse. Jackie, <laughs>
0: is- Jackie Treehorn is clearly based on this movie. Like the the yeah. the, it's one of those things that like as we get to be more broad film watchers, we realize how mm-hmm. much the Coens are bo- bo- borrowing from other directors.
1: Yeah, and specifically I think Cassavetti is like free is, is definitely a big well to which they go back to a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. But um yeah, this this movie is it's funny because one of the things that I read about is that um so Gazar's character in this movie is a person that genuinely is trying to be a good person, generally has like his interest of his club in mind, but also has his own vices. And that is central to the thesis of the Cassavetti's character in this movie that he sees Hollywood as his like club. And he's always trying to like have integrity and do the right thing and show wealth and be like a powerful individual. But everybody is trying to feed off of him, which is definitely what's happening in this movie. The other thing that I read is that uh, Mr. Fantastic or what's the name of the dude with the the drawn? Oh mustache, yeah. It's
0: not fantastic. It's sophistication.
1: So um, the other thing about this movie is that, uh, the character of Mr. Sophistication, Mr. Sophistication played by Mead Roberts is also, like, another... He's an American screen screenwriter. He worked with Tennessee Williams on screenplays for, like, a bunch of movies in the 60s and stuff, so he was, like, a big deal, you know? And Cassavetti saw him as also his alter ego in this movie, in that he's, like, the all-seeing watcher on stage that directs the way that the shows go with the girls and all that stuff, but gets none of the glory. He even makes a huge point about saying that at the end. Like, yeah, they're forgiving of the girls because they show their tits. That's what he says. And he's like, but me, if the show goes poorly, it just comes down on me but if it goes well I don't get any of the glory and he's talking about like that's also the personification of Casavetti's in this movie so it's split between him and Ben Gazzara's character which I think is so cool like this is the kind of thing that this is like the kind of bouquet you want to see opening up as you're telling a story that is really like all art is the portrait of the artist, right? Like that's when it comes down to, that's the adage here. And it's so cool to see, like, see it through this lens. Cause I, I mean, you know, we came away from our Cassavetes episode loving Cassavetes, right? Like I definitely think of him as like this multifaceted, like, a tour but also this person that understood and that's the thing right like so this movie also has an action sequence where there's guns and running and all that stuff and uh one of the articles i read is saying that that's a nod to Cassavetti's like weird sellout movies like the like the dirty dozen where he had to do these action movies to finance his cinema verite to finance his own personal endeavors that he was truly invested in so when you think about it on the surface level, like as an actual narrative, it works. But also as this allegory for uh, Cassavetti's moment in life at this point when he makes this movie, it really is so cool. It's like a, it's it's just this weird rubric of like just clues to who Cassavetti is as a person and as his place in Hollywood at this time. And for for both of those reasons, I love this movie. I thought it was amazing. It was super compelling. And also Haji's in it, which is, uh, do you know who she is? No. She is a contemporary of Tora Santana. She was in a bunch of Russ Myers movies in the 60s. She was in Faster, Ki- Faster Pussycat Kill, Kill, Kill. She was like one of those women. So like, you know, she's like a little bit older in this movie, but she's she's in the movie. And, and yeah. I thought that was really, really cool too. Like, man, to her, like, you know, a contemporary of Tora Santana's in this movie. That shit's awesome, man. And this movie just had a bunch of stuff like that. Like Seymour, Seymour yeah. Cassell in the movie as the bad guy, like, or as one of the gangsters, like that was really cool. And just, I mean, there's so much in this movie that again, this classic Hess of Eddie's, but it's so cool. and just new in the way that they did it. Right. Like it's so, mm-hmm. I thought it was awesome. Did yeah. you, did you, I, I thought it was,
0: uh, I liked how gritty and sweaty it is. It's very mm-hmm. much like a, this is the underworld of LA. And, Um, I like that both of these movies are very much a certain time period of LA film. And it's something me and you have talked a good deal about those classic New York movies, the 70s and the 80s street New York films. I, I I like these reminders that, like, L.A. had its own vibe, and this mm-hmm. is so, like, weirdly, like, neon and dark, and even, like, when he's out in the sunlight, he's often escaping back into the dark club or to a dark place, yeah. you know what I mean? Um,
1: it's, Let's talk about his tuxedo in this movie, oh his tuxedo. Yeah. He looks <laughs> so cool. With the bow tie, the clip-on yeah. bow tie. yeah. Dude, it's such so, and that's the other thing about this movie in particular. There is this impending sense of menace throughout every scene. Mm-hmm. Did you clock that too? Or is yeah. it just me? Like just all the sequences where Ben Gizar is smiling real big and he's just super charming throughout the whole movie. And like it doesn't feel exploitation. He doesn't feel like a pimp or anything like that. You know what I mean? Like he has these people that work for him that are these like ladies who take their clothes off and all this other stuff. But he never treats them with disrespect in this movie. He never is like pejorative towards their station or they're like he it, it doesn't end up being like this. um. The regular narrative that happens in these movies in these locales wouldn't you say like I think like he's a classy dude for sure yeah I think that's fair. these horrible vices yeah. yeah
0: I think that's fair I think you're right though that like that's the idea is that like he's a magnanimous dude for what it is that he's doing but he also is not like perfect he has these issues he has these weaknesses that are sort of playing out. But even in the end it's almost like he still ends in this like noble way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like He still ends
1: know. even though it's like he's suffering cuz he's shot and motherfucker is right. bleeding, but he's telling this this like motivational story despite his physical pain that he may be in cuz it got shot. Yeah. Uh and he's just trying to get the show to go on. <clears throat> um Which again speaks further to that Cassavetti's like sub subtext, sub mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like this whole concept of this director that faces the camera with a smile despite the suffering that he's going through.
0: I feel like it's it's probably not a coincidence. Like both Altman and Cassavetes right, are directors who are known for like artistic stuff. Though Altman got a lot more opportunities to make big time stuff. Cassavetes starred in big time stuff, even if he didn't direct. Mm-hmm. Big time stuff. Big time stuff. Um, But Altman did a lot of like films that are very Altman. You know, he has his own style. He has his own sort of way of doing things, uh, as obviously Cassavetes does. What I think is interesting is that they both have dipped their toes into this world. And I wondered to what extent The Long Goodbye might have been an influence on the killing of a Chinese bookie, you know. Um, Mm. But the thing for me is in putting these two movies together... um, well, I think The Long Goodbye is more my kind of movie. There's just something about it that's very mm. much up my alley, and it's it's a classic for me um, in a way that The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, it's not the sort of movie I could find myself going back to for funsies very often. You know what I mean? Mm. There's just something about the way that The Killing of a Chinese Bookie is made that I almost feel like is – Again, we're sort of comparing in some ways apples and oranges, but there's just something very unique. And I don't know. I just think there's an accomplishment to the killing of a Chinese bookie, even though the long goodbye goes down more smoothly for me. It's more appealing to my sensibilities. I just think there's still, you know, it's one thing when we're doing uh, a woman under the influence, right? That narrative lends itself to Cassavetti's. That's that is mm. that is a Cassavetti's movie. Two people losing their shit. It's like in it's, the same it's, location. Yeah. It's perfect for him. This is not Cassavetti's material. This is not what people knew him for. And yet he manages to do it compellingly in a way that is so him that only he could do. Mm. I just find that to be such an accomplishment. So like I I don't know that I'll you know put this movie on the next time I'm having like a fun movie night at my house. Uh I still think it's there's something almost miraculous about this movie that it works, that it has all that Cassavetti stuff in it, but it works from the top to the bottom.
1: What's funny about that is like I would said to like I told you before, like you know, at this point in time in my life, I definitely feel like I'm a little bit underwhelmed <sighs> or overwhelmed by just all the things happening for me right now, like new sure, job yeah. and just un- endeavors and band and new records, so on and so forth. But uh, I think that's what resonated so much with this movie to me. And if anything, this movie, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, speaks more to that Hollywood interconnectedness and the one every man that holds the whole spider web together than um, the Long Goodbye, because like this movie you can see it. You see the central, like the funny thing about the cast movie is that there's like really funny bits in there. Like there's the scene where he's waiting for the cab. Cause his car breaks down on the way to kill the Chinese bookie. And he gets in the phone booth and he calls the club to find out what's happening on the stage with Mr. Sophistication and the girls. Uh-huh. And he's yelling at the dude. Is he singing? What's he singing? And it's like, it's just such a funny bit where we you're just like, yo, this dude's on his way to murder someone. He's like really still concerned about what the dude on the stage at his club is singing. And he's like yelling, he's like frothing at the mouth in a phone booth. So like to this, to speaking to that, it's this, again, this multifaceted, yet everybody's got to be cool on that surface while executing both literally and figuratively on all these different aspects of this guy's life. And that for me resonates so much more than even though I love Elliot Gould, I think as I said, he's solid Gould. I I definitely think that killing of a Chinese bookie spoke to me more on this episode just because that feels more like where I am in life. Now going back to it for going back to it for funsies, I'm not so sure for funsies, but going back to it for the concept that like, you know, in the end, Ben Gazara, his art is his club.
0: Just yeah. like Cassavetes' yeah.
1: art is his film, so speaking to me as, uh, you know, a, a self-identified artiste, which you know I can say that I am, yeah, like I get it. You know what I mean? It yeah. hit me in a way that I was like, "Yo, this is like right in my snot box. Like this is the thing right here." Mm-hmm. So like, I loved this movie. I don't know if I loved it more than the Long Goodbye because I loved the Long Goodbye. Don't get a twist. it twisted. Like, it doesn't have to shit- be. A,
0: it doesn't have to be a contest. It's just having watched them together like this. It's interesting yeah. how. They're very different, but they have so many things in common as well.
1: You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Much like the last episode where we compared the Sparks documentary to Summer of Soul. Yeah, a lot of things in common. One speaks more. That that was that was
0: unfair though, because the more I think about it, it's like Summer of Soul is like a lifetime moment. Like that Sparks Mm -hmm. documentary is fun. But that's because the sparks are fun, and Edgar Wright is a quality director. Summer of Soul mm-hmm. is like a cultural accomplishment, and there's, you know, the fact that Questlove directed that shit. There's no reason for that movie to be as amazing as it is, because Questlove yeah. is a first-time director. It should have been, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. clunky, and it's not. It's like near
1: perfect. It's, it's so, sleek, and it's, but I mean, the point is though that even though it's the same shot, even though it's the same thing, there's certain resonances that it will carry further. Right? Yes. And comparing the killing of a Chinese bookie to the long goodbye, or long yeah, long goodbye. Like they both are wonderful movies, and I love them both very, very dearly. But I think Killing of a Chinese Bookie just speaks to me more as an artist, as a person that tries to keep everything together while everything's falling yeah. apart. Yeah. As a person who perpetually has people that are trying to get things from me that I'm not necessarily ready to give away, or ready, or, or even like wealthy enough to to give away without missing. You know what I mean? Like yeah. all of this is very Casavetti's to me, and all of this spoke to me while watching this movie. And I I love it. That's what I'm saying.
0: Well, we've been talking for a while, so I guess we should wrap up. Although, as usual, like, you know, we we, we keep these things – in our mind short it might be long to some people but in our mind we try to keep it a little bit shorter uh but obviously there's more to say about both of these films and uh you know i'm sure there's lots of great writing out there so uh feel free to check it out um and let us know what you think like if these are new for you which you know what what it was like checking them out if they're classics what it is that appeals to you about them um in your sort of life as a film fan uh you know, Josh, if 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 they want to know more about us or check out some of the shows on the network, what should they do?
1: They should go to all of the socials and find CinePunks, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're all on all those as CinePunks. So if you guys want to know or even if you look, here's the thing about me and Liam, y'all. We want to talk to you guys. We're not like we're not sitting in some ivory tower being like, yes, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not Gandalf. So like. Uh, or a Sora, but I mean, it's like you know, engage with us. We want to talk to you. We want to know about your film stuff. We want to know what we should talk about, what we what we could talk about that would make you uh, that would sate any type of curiosity you have, right? Like if you want us to watch like X, Y, and Z movies, let us know. We'll probably watch them, honestly. And also, we like growing our base. We like growing our our team because honestly, we're here for everybody, just like movies are we're here for you. And if you want to, if you want to talk stuff, if you want to bring stuff to the table, our table is open. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's do things. Right. That's what I think.
0: I feel you, Josh. That's good. Um, was that too much? I don't know. No, not at all. Not at all.
1: Not at all. Uh, so Lee, is there anything coming up that you're excited about? Is there anything that you're working on that we should be stoked on?
0: I feel like you're teeing me up for something, but I don't know what it is. I will say that there's something you're working on, which is, um, as people should know, uh, the Decibel
1: uh, Metal and Beer Fest. Is that right? Yep. Decibel Metal and Beer Fest is coming up in September 24th and 25th and 26th. Right. But what you need to know about this is that seminal New Jersey hardcore band Dead Guy is reuniting for the first time since they've broken up the second time, I guess, with the original um, Fixation on a Coworker lineup, and they will be playing. But their friend of the show, Nathaniel Shannon, and uh, Fourth Media in New York City have worked to make a documentary about Dead Guy called Dead Guy Killing Music. And prior to the Decibel Beer Beer and Metal Fest, they asked Cinepunks if we could put on the premiere of this movie, which we will be doing, Uh, Friday, September 24th at Underground Arts. So there will be a live Q&A with Dead Guy and filmmakers. And um, I'll be there presenting this movie. So more details to come, but this is what's shaking out. So please, please, please come out to the screening. I'm so nervous that no one's going to be there. But I know people are going to be there because people love Dead Guy. So if you love Dead Guy, if you love New Jersey Hardcore, if you were there at that time, you know how important this moment was for us as fans of hardcore music and us as people from New Jersey. Like, this is a thing, man. And, like, I'm just happy that Nathaniel and 4th Media asked me to be a part of it, and I'm happy to be able to present it at home before dead guy go on, like that's gonna be cool as shit. So, um, look to the socials. We'll be posting more about it, and we'll be. Uh, it's gonna be a, a time. So, underground arts, Friday, September twenty fourth. Come check us out, and it's gonna be a wild, wild show. Q and A. There's gonna be after party with a DJ and all this other stuff. So it's gonna be fun. Plus, uh, Broken Gobble Brewery is gonna be unveiling a specific beer for this event. Whoa. What? Whoa. yeah, that shit's crazy. So um, even though I'm low carb, so I'm not drinking beer, come drink some beer with me. You can drink it. I'm okay with that. Um yeah, it's gonna be time. Tar- tar- cool. Cool. Also, um, if this episode goes up before this weekend, I'll be playing this. It, Sunday. It won't. Don't
0: even try. It, Don't even try. Right. Not gonna happen I'm playing
1: on Sunday. Like I said.
0: Okay. J- Josh played on Sunday and you missed it. <laughs>
1: It was cool. You should have been there. It was chill. All right. So that's it. episode 137. Done and done. We love you all. Thanks for listening. Always rate, review, subscribe. Tell a friend, you know, that's what it is. Cinepunks. Buy a shirt. It's dope. <laughs> Thanks.
0: Okay, we'll see you later. Oh,
1: man, I need to sleep. Smoke Pub!
0: Do you like spooky movies? Hair raising tales. Insightful criticism.
1: Judgmental hot takes. Then you're going to love Horror Business, the horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Donald. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not so favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great or maybe not great. <laughs> Whether
0: it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products. (laughs)